Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. The use of Isaiah chapter 40 in all four Gospels underscores the centrality of the wilderness as God's base of operations for preaching the Gospel outside of and in opposition to the things that human beings construct both mentally and physically. Still, this fact does not give us a license to claim an abstract understanding of the meaning of Isaiah chapter 40 or what it implies for the writers of the New Testament. A word, a phrase, or even a passage from a biblical text holds no meaning in abstraction. Even when placed in context, words extracted from scripture are powerless when stripped of their canonical syntax and literary function. While the systematic use of Isaiah chapter 40 highlights the significance of the Midbar and shepherdism in all four Gospels, Mark's Gospel applies Isaiah chapter 40 to the conspiracy against St. Paul's teaching, emphasizing Paul's function as the voice of the Lord in the wilderness. In contrast, faced with a Gentile audience already evangelized by St. Paul, Luke is much more interested in demonstrating how the Lord goes about flattening, smoothing, and straightening the crooked places of Rome and Jerusalem. In each text, the where, when, how, and why of Isaiah chapter 40 are made functional along with the way its language is employed to drive home the author's specific point. To make the mistake of generalizing or glossing over the value of each appearance is as misguided as ignoring or dismissing the Bible's endless repetition of certain passages because we heard them and we think we know them. Arrogance may look good on God, but it looks like ignorance on the rest of us. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, verses 3 to 6. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 471 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We are about to hear Luke quote a passage from Isaiah that is often heard on the lips of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It's a passage that talks about the straightening of crooked places and the leveling of uneven places in the wilderness. 
Now, when Dr. King quotes this verse with respect to civil rights, he's thinking in terms of equality and rooting out corruption. And it's not hard. It's not a stretch when we think of prophetic justice and the law of Moses and God's judgment. It's not a stretch to see how Dr. King could get from Isaiah to what he is trying to teach in the context of the injustice that he was confronted with in his own time and we're still struggling with today in American civilization. And I use the word civilization specifically in the context of our study of Luke, because civilization scripturally is the operative pejorative term. Because civilization is the thing we build up to make things uneven, to make things hierarchical, to create the illusion of distinction, exception, separation, and inequality. We've said a zillion times on this podcast, Rich, quoting Father Paul's handling of the Hebrew in Isaiah, that arrogance on God looks beautiful because the use of arrogance in Isaiah is exactly about the flattening of uneven places and the straightening of crooked places so that only God stands out on the horizon. That's the literary function. But what's happening in Isaiah is that civilization is being leveled. That's ultimately the metaphor. The things that we create that establish hierarchy are being eliminated. And I wanted to share a quote that I came across recently in this beautiful book, The Atlas of the Heart. It's a non-scriptural reference, but I think it's germane to our discussion of institution and the way that institution corrupts and why it's so essential to allow Scripture to destroy institution, to destroy the things that we build, the things that we create as human beings that dehumanize. We love to talk about dehumanization with respect to how we treat people of different colors, of different races, but we dehumanize each other all the time. It is very easy to take a human being and treat them like an object and throw them away. Institution makes that possible. Institution facilitates that kind of behavior, the objectification of people. Just listen to this quote, it's so beautiful. When we practice generating compassion, we can expect to experience our fear of pain. In cultivating compassion, we draw from the wholeness of our experience, our suffering, our empathy, as well as our cruelty and terror. It has to be this way. Only when we know our own darkness well can we be present with the darkness of others.
compassion becomes real when we recognize our shared humanity. This is a quote by a famous Buddhist nun, Pema Chodron, and she's talking about compassion as something experienced not in a hierarchical context, but as something experienced between equals, meaning that you can only show compassion when you yourself understand that there's no difference between you and the other person. And what's happening in Isaiah, and I like this quote, because what's happening in Isaiah is everything is being leveled so that the only one who stands out is God. But when we human beings build things, we build our civilization, our idols, our institutions, whatever we construct, to put any kind of separation between ourselves and those around us, we insulate ourselves and we make it possible to pretend, to pretend that there's some connection with ourselves and another person, to pretend that we have compassion when what we're really doing is mistreating one another, using one another. So in this sense, Dr. King, when he's quoting Isaiah, is correct. Dorothy Day, when she makes fun of people who think they're being compassionate by exercising a process, is correct. You cannot be compassionate through your processes and your policies. Compassion is personal. Helping other people, teaching other people, supporting other people, helping other people grow and mature. All of the things institutions claim to believe in, those things are personal. They can't be institutionalized. In scripture, what's powerful about the flattening that takes place in the text, it's literary, it's not literal in the historical sense. It's literal in the sense that you have to pay attention to what's written literally in terms of grammar and function. What's happening is that you're presented with a story in Isaiah where only God stands out so that what's left upon the earth is the opportunity for compassion. That's why there's no room for Caesar Augustus or Tiberius in the story of Luke's gospel. And that's why this is a text that lifts up shepherdism as its reference, because the shepherds operate on the ground level after everything has been flattened by the word of the Lord. This command to flatten the roads to make them straight goes along with the people exclaiming, crying to Jerusalem, which I find interesting that there's a separation between the people and the city. If we look at Isaiah 40, which is the context that these citations in Luke 3 come from. Now, what you're talking about, Father, with this unevenness, I think it's apropos that last time we spent so much time talking about the rulers of this place, because ruling is always hierarchical. It's always uneven. It has to be. That's the only way hierarchy works. We have these rulers of this province that come from Caesar. 
Then you have the rulers of the temple, which are in between, so therefore are not following the rules of the Sermon on the Mount of not being able to follow one master. So the unevenness was created by these human beings. Now, there is a hierarchy in the land, that is the Lord and everybody else who are his slaves, and that goes from Caesar all the way down to this dude in the wilderness. They're all equally low beneath the Lord. They're in this wilderness, and they are under the supposed aegis of the earthly rulers. And so the evenness and the word that the people are supposed to speak to Jerusalem are of the same nature, and that is of the kingship, the rule of the Lord over his land and over the people that live in it. Not his people, the people who live in it, because I don't want to go into his people because, you know, then it starts to get confusing. But his people always means the people who are obedient to him. So whatever the forefathers are of the people who are obedient to him, they are his people. So the obedience and the disobedience as the rule become the thing that straightens the roads, that flattens the landscape, that make people equally subservient to this word of the Lord. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. And I'll just say quickly, Richard, this term, metania, which is theologized ad nauseum, can't be heard in Greek philosophically. It must be heard against the Hebrew context. The word shuv means to turn. And if you allow yourself to visualize it, which is always dangerous to visualize anything. But if you allow yourself to visualize it, you must visualize it in a very literal sense as someone walking on a path, hearing instruction, and then disobeying the instruction and turning off the path. It's really as simple as that. So if the prophet is in the district of the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance, he's preaching the instruction of baptism. That's a very interesting point, actually. He is preaching a baptism, as Paul in 1 Corinthians preaches a cross. It's the teaching of the cross in 1 Corinthians. Here in Luke, it's a teaching of baptism, specifically of a turning from your current path to a different path unto the forgiveness of sins. Now, it's the letting go, the dismissal of sins. It's the news of the dismissal of sins. You're hearing this teaching of the forgiveness of sins. It's an announcement because the forgiveness of sins is encoded in the teaching of baptism 
that John is announcing. This is spoken to the heart of Jerusalem. There's an interesting play in the Hebrew. And in the beginning of Isaiah 40, this can be translated as either speak against the heart of Jerusalem or speak to the heart of Jerusalem. And the heart also means the core of Jerusalem. So speaking to the core of Jerusalem, speaking against the core of Jerusalem, this is what this message is aimed at. Like you said, Father, shuv is turned. It can either mean to repent, or it can mean to apostatize. You're either turning off the path or turning on to the path. So he's saying, turn on to this path, and this is being spoken to the very core of Jerusalem, which may explain why we had these high priests mentioned in the previous verse, among all these Gentile rulers. The core of Jerusalem is the temple, and the core of the temple is the high priest, and this is the word that is being spoken to them or against them that is in the wilderness. And, you know, we can't let the wilderness go by without talking about Father Paul and his emphasis that all the things that happen are in the wilderness. It's about the shepherd's flock and about the Lord as essentially a shepherd. So, of course, the word would come to them in the wilderness, in all the area around the Jordan, as it said, the perihoron. It's the periphery. It's the wilderness around the river. It's in the dry places. But these are the shepherds. Where do the shepherds go to drink? Where do they bring their flocks to drink? It's to the river, right here. He's speaking to the shepherds both the literal and the metaphorical shepherds, that it's time to turn and do precisely what the Lord is commanding. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. This word wilderness in Greek is, of course, erimos, but it corresponds to the now hopefully famous word midbar, which is important because of its triliteral, which corresponds functionally to Dabar. Why? Because the Midbar, the wilderness, is the place from whence we hear the Dabar. One cannot repeat this point enough times. And each time you hear it, Hopefully you come just a little bit closer to grasping what functionality is and why it's so important to hear the text in the original languages so that you don't imagine that this connection between wilderness and the Torah is some kind of imaginary postmodern interpretation of the text that just seemed kind of interesting to the person hearing it based on their personal experience. No. It's encoded in the text. The Dabar is locked in physically to the Midbar. The voice crying in the wilderness is the Lord's shepherd. It's a divine voice. If you want to hear the word of God, you're not going to hear it in the city. You're going to hear it at the Midbar. Make ready the way of the Lord, the path of the Lord, the odos, which corresponds to the derek of the Lord. 
make his path straight. Now, what's interesting, and I've always found this fascinating about this turn of phrase, Richard, is that there are no roads in the wilderness. So you're making a straight path in a place where it's impossible to do so. Not only is he straightening out things that might be wandering, but he's doing so in a place where it's impossible to do so. There's all sorts of things happening with this language and this imagery in Isaiah. So much is going on here. I mean, even more so when you look at the Hebrew, the word for straighten is yasher, which is also the root that has to do with righteousness. When one is straightforward and correct, one is straight. When one is straightening the paths, making the paths straight, it's the same word, yashar. There's all these ties that we have here. Now, one thing is that in the Greek, it's missing this little piece from the Hebrew in Isaiah, which is in the desert, in the second half there. So we have the Midbar, but we also have the Arabah in Hebrew, which is the dry place. And we don't have that mentioned in the passage here in Luke. So that part is taken out, which allows us to focus on this Erimos, the Midbar, as the location where this is taking place. We have these earthly rulers, but now we hear that this place is empty. We have these earthly rulers, but now we hear we need a road, which I love when you bring this to the Romans and you say, you know, what you need is a road. The Romans were famous for their roads. We have Roman roads to this day. They had fantastic roads. But according to this, it said you need to make this way straight. You need to prepare this way because it needs to be straight for the Lord. This is the way of the Lord. This is the way that people are going to walk along when they turn to walk along the path. And it needs to be straight because the opposite of straight is crooked. And crooked people, people who walk in a crooked way, are not obedient. They're not righteous. So it has to be straight so that people can turn onto it and walk the correct direction, walk the correct way, walk obediently according to this word, dabar, in the desert, in the midbar. And just like you don't need marks on the flesh to be circumcised in the gospel, you don't need a road in the desert to walk straight on the path of the Lord. As we hear in the book of Joshua, wherever you walk, if somebody is whispering the law of Moses in your ear and you obey it, if you turn from your wicked ways and walk according to the law of Moses, wherever you walk, you are walking in the land of promise. And the Lord is making the path straight for you. That's the mechanism. I always grin when I hear about the street called straight in Syria. I mean, wherever Paul walks is the street called straight, with all due respect. Every ravine will be filled, and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough roads smooth. By now, hopefully, you're getting the message about this metaphor of the straight street, of the straightening of things, the smoothing of things, the arrogant mountain and hill being brought low. Things are being straightened out, smoothed out, leveled out by the teaching so that everything is brought into submission, everything is brought under control, so that only God stands out on the horizon, and that everything is following his instruction, everything is in good order.
precisely in the order that the Lord lays out. And one thing I forgot to mention is this beginning of second Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 40 is a call to those who are in captivity in Babylon to come back to the land that the Lord has set aside for them to live in, has given to them as an inheritance that allowed them to inherit. It belongs to the Lord, but he's giving it to them as an inheritance. This walking straight is for those who want to leave captivity of Babylon, which is parallel with the captivity under Pharaoh. Hosea makes this parallel. And you're allowed to leave this human institution of Babylonia, of Pharaoh, so that you can be obedient to the true Lord, who is the God of hosts. In this way, the crooked ways being made straight, there's a metaphor because people who want to stay in line with what the Lord wants, walk straight on that line. This is how the crooked is made straight. It's not about a miraculous reconfiguration of the geography. It's a miraculous reconfiguration of the way that people walk, because they're conditioned to walk according to the way that Caesar taught them, that Pharaoh taught them, that our own human biology taught us. The only one who's not subject to this biology is the Lord, and then we know that Jesus voluntarily gave that up. But this is the line that we walk. We are not allowed to take a step to the left or to the right, even though we do. But this is the mercy of the Lord that comes, that even those who may take a step off the path may come back to the path. And that is the beauty of this. It's calling out of those people who are no longer walking according to this path, who are no longer walking straight, who are no longer walking according to obedience to this word, and calling them back in so that they may. And this is the gift that the Lord gives through this word, this harsh word that John is delivering in the wilderness. And all flesh will see the salvation of God. I love this expression. Not in Greek. In Greek, it's boring, pasasax. In Hebrew, I remember this even from our seminary days. I used to joke because it sounds like kilbasa. Kolbasar, all flesh, meaning not just human beings, all living things. We can't be anthropocentric all flesh, everything that's living upon the earth, will see the victory of God, the victory, salvation. You know, Father Paul made this point, and it's important to keep coming back to this. We can't allow the inadequacy of English with respect to biblical terminology. You can't say the inadequacy of English. English is a fine language. The inadequacy of English with respect to biblical terminology to shortchange a word like soterion. If you translate it as salvation, it's a half translation. If you translate it as victory, it's a half translation. All flesh will see the victory salvation of God, because in achieving victory, he is also winning our salvation. That's the basic idea. But it's a total victory salvation for all living things. And that's the power it goes beyond even our self-serving idea of not just one religious tribe or another religious tribe. It's all of creation. All the living things within 
the Toledot of the heavens and the earth would be a better way of saying it to be as specific as possible and as faithful as possible, Richard, to the terminology of Genesis 1 through 4. All flesh. It's so wonderful you brought that up again, because all of creation is going to be included in Hebrew. It says, the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together. All living things are going to see this glory at the same time. It's this way that's made in the wilderness where you're missing the water. It's like a wadi that is coming through the desert, and all of a sudden you have water, you have life, and this is what's given by the Lord. But why is it? And this is something that is not in the Greek. Because the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Daber. The Word is what waters the wilderness. The Word is what brings salvation. The Word is the glory of the Lord. And the beauty of this is this guy, John, who is the grace. Remember, Johanna, the name of grace that was given to him against the will of the relatives and the neighbors. Born of someone linked with the temple, who left the temple, left Jerusalem, left the heart of Jerusalem in order to go out into the desert, but is given this word to speak. His father had the word taken away from him, and this word is given to him. And it's the word of salvation that comes because the Lord has spoken his word in the wilderness, the Midbar, which is the home of his word. I mean, all the language that comes together in this section is amazing. The straightness, the word, the wilderness, the path, the dryness, the wetness, the life that's been given, and ultimately the salvation which allows all to come on this path once again in order to share in this life. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.